You're listening to The Spear, a podcast about the combat experience from the Modern War Institute at West Point. More than 100 meters outside the village, you were definitely getting in a firefight. My first patrol I took, we had a far ambush. And then it was just a, a huge explosion. The primary threat was RKG-3 grenades, like machine guns and AK-47s, that kind of thing. Small arms fire, RPG fire. Explosively formed penetrators. Suicide bombs. And then that's about the time that the third IED went off. And that's when another grenade comes spinning over the side of the wall. And it's at that point the IED chain detonates. There was enemy in the wire. There's all these Humvees on fire. It, it was truly bullets flying from every angle that, that you could see. I open the door and look outside, and all I see is muzzle flashes. There's a guy on top with a 240, and the rounds pass right past his head. At that point, our instincts kicked in. One, one pilot on the controls, the other pilot was using his M4 to engage single-man targets on the ground. You're shooting at everything. It was a fight. Few books have had the impact on generations of young soldiers and leaders as Jim McDonough's Platoon Leader, a memoir of command and combat. World War II classics like Charles McDonough's Company Commander or George Wilson's If You Survive, or the Vietnam memoir of Phil Caputo, A Rumor of War, are among the few books that come to mind. First published in the mid-1980s, Platoon Leader remains on military reading lists worldwide and is still included in curriculum for junior officers and NCOs, across the Joint and Combined Force. Detailing the events that shaped Jim's lives as a young lieutenant in the 173rd Airborne Brigade in South Vietnam, Platoon Leader is a tale of leadership, followership, and the burdens of infantry combat on the young men and women in line companies. Recently, I had the privilege of interviewing Jim for the spear. Unfortunately, the audio quality was not what we normally publish here at MWI. Nevertheless, as with our interview of Nakib Mirzada and his experiences in the fall of Afghanistan, the power of the story that Jim tells outweighs any of the technical imperfections in the recording. I think you'll find that as well. Thanks for listening again to The Spear. Welcome to The Spear, the podcast about the combat experience brought to you by the Modern War Institute at West Point. I'm your host, Tim Heck. Today, I've got a unique opportunity. I'm interviewing James McDonough. And if that name sounds familiar to you, it's because you've probably read his masterful work, Platoon Leader, A Memoir of Combat and Command. Jim graduated from West Point and found himself a platoon leader in Vietnam shortly thereafter. The book, which all of the students here at West Point read, and many of us in the Joint Force have read as well, is a touchpoint for what it's like to be a young leader in combat. So I'm honored to have Jim join us on the show today. Jim, thanks for being here. Thank you, Tim. Jim, can you give us a little bit of the background that brought you to West Point, that brought you into the Army, uh, and then kind of took you through your first years in Vietnam? Well, I always... Uh admired my father. My father was an NCO in the Army. He served uh, in World War II, got out shortly after World War II, uh, but came right back in about two years later and stayed for a total of 22 years. So I uh, got to observe him, his peers, uh, almost all of them World War II veterans. Uh, as I grew older and he spent more time, almost all of them, non-commissioned officers, I admired them like I admired him. I wanted to be with people like that. And so right away, I started thinking about the Army. Uh, in fact, like you, uh, when Vietnam started, uh, and I first noted it in 1965, about the time I'm looking uh, to perhaps going to West Point, uh, we had just entered into Vietnam. Like a lot of other 
uh, gung-ho patriotic American young men, I quickly volunteered to join the Marine Corps. Although I was in college at the time. However, just about the time I volunteered to join the Marine Corps, I actually went to the recruiting station and began to go through the process. I got notified that uh, there's a chance I could attend West Point. Uh, and so that's where I went. But once I got in, I was uh, very glad I did. That is to say, uh, the Army. Uh, it was everything I expected to be and more. Uh, so I found it uh, just a very uh, professional organization. Uh, facing hard times, as armies always do, particularly when there's a war. And I decided not only to be in the army, but to stay for the long haul. In your time at West Point, the army is at war in Vietnam. Tet is happening. The Cold War is happening. Did you have a sense, without a doubt, that your first stop after Ranger School, Airborne School, whatever the training pipeline, was going to be a platoon in South Vietnam? Uh, when I first got there in uh, the summer of 65, there were almost no uh, combat veterans from Vietnam. There were some from uh, El Nicadre. There were uh, several from the Korean War and even several from World War II. But my expectation as a, a new plebe was that this war will be over long before I graduate. Uh, so this is probably not going to be my war. But as time passed, uh, all of that began to change. You would see more and more uh, veterans, uh, officers uh, entering as tax, as instructors, many of them with uh, wounds, some of them recovering from wounds, even while they were on the cadre. And uh, the first classmen that I knew as a plebe began to enter into the combat zone. And shortly thereafter, uh, their names began to appear on the killed in action uh, list. Uh, West Point, during my time there, actually began to uh, memorialize them a bit by uh, uh, having a mobile sort of wall, not very big at first, and they would get a uh, plaque, small plaque, with their name and year of graduation as they appeared uh, on the killed in action list and post them there. Not a permanent thing, but they uh, displayed them in Thayer Hall. You could roll this thing around. And uh, as the months passed, the names increased. They began with one, uh, one movable mount that uh, would go up and down the hall and appear in various places. And then after about, uh, I'd say by 1967, two years in at West Point for me, uh, there were two of them, then three of them, then four of them. And as we began to approach our first year, it became pretty clear to me that this war is not going away in a hurry. Uh, the casualty lists, uh, if anything, were mounting. Uh, 67, 68, uh, 69, very high casualties. So by the time I'm a firstie and moving forward on uh, what's likely to happen to me after I graduate, my uh, expectation and my preference was to serve in Vietnam, not for the glory uh, not for the, uh, the thrill of it all, but because I felt it was my duty. I felt I had had uh, four years of a gift of an education from West Point. I thought the education and the experience, the training, the professional was tremendous. So I felt it was my turn to take my chances uh, as well. So I was always inclined to be in the infantry, always admired the infantry, a real test of leadership. Uh, and so I 
signed up for the infantry, and I asked to go to Vietnam. The uh, command sergeant major of USCC was a wonderful man named Ted Arthurs at the time, had a tremendous war record from the Korean War and from uh, Vietnam. In fact, he's at the Battle of Dok Cho. To give you an idea of uh, Sergeant Major Arthurs, uh, Dok Cho was a bloody, bloody battle. And uh, one of our battalions takes over 800 casualties trying to take a hill there. As I remember, the hill was 875. This is uh, circa Thanksgiving 1967. Arthurs is on a helicopter. We have taken the peak of uh, uh, that hill, but everybody's a casualty, and all the officers are dead. And so the uh, Italian operations officer is on the helicopter with Arthurs, and the battalion commander gives him an order to the uh, operations officer, a major, to go in and take command of the, of the, uh, of the company which is going to turn out 17 wounded men is what's left of the company. As the major gets off the helicopter, he's shot in the head and killed. Without further ado, Arthur's jumps in and takes command of that company. 17 men moves them back into a perimeter, keeps them all alive. They're foot to foot. They fight through the night. Uh, it's a hell of a night, uh, but they all survive. Give you the flavor of Arthur's. But Arthur's was serving in the 173rd Airborne uh, brigade, separate brigade in Vietnam. And he uh, knew I had volunteered for infantry. This is now 1969. And he suggested if I really want to get into Vietnam and uh, and lead troops, I should ask for the 173rd. And I did. Uh, so that's the unit that I ended up in. Well, that's really how it evolved. To me, there was never a question that I was uh, going to go in the infantry and there was never a question, as I saw the war was continuing, that that was where I should go. You've mentioned now several times the role of NCOs, be it your father, be it Command Sergeant Major Arthurs. In your training and evolution, as a, as a young lieutenant, as a young officer, what was going through your head the first time you met your platoon sergeant? Well, I, he also was a Korean War uh, veteran uh, and also had been wounded there. Uh, I respected him. Ironically, this is really, uh, you talk about kismet or fate and the coincidences that take place. Uh, he had been my patrol leader in ranger school a few months prior. Now, I didn't know I was going to meet him again in Vietnam. But uh, the night he was the patrol leader, so suddenly I show up and there's this veteran, wounded veteran, uh, ranger instructor. I thought, pretty good deal. I got a... Uh, I got a real gung-ho uh, platoon sergeant who knows the business. And he was that way, but he was also uh, one of the many NCOs that did multiple tours in Vietnam. Vietnam was very hard on our NCOs. That was, uh, if you were in a line unit in Vietnam, particularly an infantry unit, but any line unit where you were in combat with the enemy di directly, my estimation, and I don't think this is overstatement, you are running an enormously high percentage of being casualty. So if you are, let's say, my estimate is at least 80%, you're, you're going to get killed or wounded because you're in there fighting, uh, almost face-to-face. -face. In fact, often face-to-face. -face. You know, you're behind a bush. The enemy's uh, 10 meters to your front. He's behind a bush, and you're trying to kill each other. But multiply that again and again. 
with many people, not just you and one enemy, lots of us, and uh, the casualty probability go very high. So if you're an NCO, you do the math on that. If you say you have three tours, I forget how many he had, you were running high probability of getting not only uh, hurt, but badly hurt and perhaps killed. So by the end of that war, we had really suffered a heavy attrition of NCOs. Now, I tell you all that because what I did note as time passed with the original platoon sergeant I met, he was strong, uh, he was uh, assertive. Uh, in fact, at one point, uh, we had a discussion of during a fight, the lieutenant's role is this and the platoon sergeant's role is this. It was a, it was a uh, decent discussion. It wasn't hostile, but we were stepping over each other in the first couple of fights, probably more my fault than his. But what I did notice, he was not aggressive at this point. And by that, I don't mean he was withdrawn. He was timid. He just was, he was more prone to the defense. And he would have rather that we stay very much in the defense, cut back on the patrolling, and uh, made sure we could control our own perimeter, which uh, as a separated platoon from the unit, but not very big. My own view, if we did that, two bad things would happen. Uh, number one, we would not accomplish our mission, which was to pacify and protect the village right next to us. And number two, the enemy would pick up on that and would uh, bide their time and eventually hit us and overrun us. So uh, we got along very good, but uh, became an opportunity uh, to get a new platoon sergeant, and I took advantage of that. When meeting your squad leaders, when meeting your platoon sergeant and 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 the second platoon sergeant, what was the what was the guidance or the sense that you gave them about who you were and what you wanted to accomplish, and and what did you take from them? I know what's going on when the moment you meet. Uh, both parties are sizing one another up. Now, I'm sizing up, the squad leaders are sizing me up. Uh, you don't want to overstep, or I didn't want to overstep. And so I'm here to save you and win this war. It was, uh, gentlemen, uh, pleasure to meet you. Uh, proud to be here. I'm a fine unit. I've heard nothing but good things about a 173rd Airborne, which was very true, given my background and uh, knowledge of Sergeant Major Arthur, who praised it endlessly. But it was a storied unit. Uh, so I'm presuming great valor, great honor, great courage, uh, and great professionalism, but I'm not sure that's true in the individual case. Uh, I don't tell them much about myself. Uh, I figure that uh, they'll be able to judge for themselves, for, uh, for themselves, what kind of person I am. I'm essentially sticking to a business. Uh, how many men in your squad? Uh, how would you say they're doing? Uh, do you have any problems? But I'm also on the cusp, and I mean by minutes, of giving my first order. And my first order is going to be, uh, we're going to send out a patrol. Uh, and I tell them that uh, you know, I'll rotate the patrols. I'll go along with them. I need to uh, see the terrain. I need to uh, see how they operate. But if I go out with a single squad, squad leaders uh, in charge of that squad, uh, I will uh, give him his lead and usurp it. I'm not using words like that, by the way. Only if I feel this is larger than a squad action or if I see something uh, 
that I consider very dangerous or wrong about to happen. But this is all done in a matter of minutes, and then uh, I figure out which squad is up for the patrol. Uh, we're getting towards, uh, it's early in the day, this is going to be a reconnaissance patrol, and I'm going to join them. Right away, they're getting the impression that uh, you know, I'm in charge. I hope they got the impression I wasn't overstating and interfering with their own domain of leadership, but also there to uh, oversee and take any corrective action as needed but also to coordinate the entire platoon. So other orders are going out too. Uh, I see a few things around the perimeter I don't like. I uh, direct uh, the platoon sergeant to address them, and we're off. So that's the beginning. Pretty quiet, pretty uh, subdued, but on the other hand, uh, firm and demonstrative. I'm going out on patrol. I, I had to, sensed, and later on was confirmed by the soldiers in the platoon, that my predecessor had not gone out on patrols, which I, to this day, cannot understand. But I think he may have justified it by saying, well, you send out patrols usually a squad at a time with three squads. The bulk of the force is here in the perimeter astride the village. So the commander goes where the center of mass is, something like that. Uh, my own philosophy, the commander goes where he needs to go. But usually that is at the uh, point of uh, highest risk. Highest risk uh, was out on patrol. By the way, platooners can't go on every patrol, but there has to be some uh, sort of equity. So my own rule of thumb, which I, I don't articulate, but I demonstrate, is I will take uh, my due share of the risk. So in the main, I joined about... Uh, Every third patrol or so, I would go out. Some would be reconnaissance patrols. Some would be uh, nighttime ambushes, which uh, hold different nature. And whenever it was more than a squad, and uh, those would come up. Whenever we're moving into an attack or we're linking up with another unit, I would go on those patrols. So you do that for five months or six months. That's a lot of patrols. But remember, the uh, the the SOP in Vietnam is the... The soldiers spent 365 days in the field. A unit like mine, that meant 365 days never coming back to a rare area like many units did. Not a big, you know, base, uh, a little dinky knob on a hill with the enemy all around you. So, uh, but the officers, in contrast, were generally rotated out, particularly even uh, the, uh, the junior officers. Uh, they would lead a platoon for half a year, maybe, and then they would do some other job, uh, usually on staff. The first patrol happens. You've directed your platoon sergeant to make some changes back at the base. Was there a sense of relief when you came back in the wires that I made it through the first one? Or was it just, hey, this is patrol one of X thousands that I'm going to do this year and one foot in front of the other? I didn't think, well, I've done that. It's over. I can rest now. I thought, boy, it's pretty scary out here. You know, you're looking out for booby traps. You're looking out for ambushes. Enemy and ambush day and night. And we ambush day and night. The emphasis on night. You're more likely to be successful at night. But you're running into people. The end of the first patrol, I thought, well, okay, I've done one, but I'm, I'm a long way from being a veteran. I don't think I thought about it in those words, but that was, that was my sense. Plus, there's a lot of other things I have to start looking at, you know, where's the ammo kept, uh, those Claymore mines along the wire, are they 
are they active? Are they well placed? Uh, are we protect against the backlash? You know, what are our heavy weapons? Where are the machine guns? How good are the machine guns? Can we get interlocking fires? Everything they teach you in the basic course, everything they teach you, and you know, all of this becomes vitally important. I mean, uh, one thing about the army, it doesn't fail to learn lessons as it goes through combat, and it enters it into our training and education systems. So if a young officer ever thinks, oh, this is very boring, I don't need this, or this is very basic, everybody knows that, or this is antiquated, I would never do that. I would suggest uh, take another look. There's going to be times when uh, the things you thought you would never do, it's the only thing that works. I can give you an example. One thing they taught at the infantry school was uh, at a certain point, you bring your soldiers online and you move forward firing. And I'm thinking then, and the basic course, forget that. The firepower rates today, you put soldiers online or you get picked apart. Now, one night, the village was hit. This is later in my tour. Uh, the enemy was in it. We uh, had to attack and get them out. And I had a Vietnamese uh, regional force platoon, which was badly, badly decimated in that attack. But there were survivors, so now I ha- and we had taken some casualties. So now I had a mixed group of Americans and Vietnamese. I don't speak Vietnamese. The enemy's still there. I got to push them out. They're killing villagers. So I bring everybody online, just like they said to do at the infantry school, and we open up. And the uh, <clears throat> the momentum of the move and the force and the uh, pressure that drove the enemy out. I did that again one night. Just an American group, we got caught in a, a rice paddy uh, crossing. Point man was badly hit, went into the water. A water rice paddy would have drowned in that. He got a bad wound. Uh, it went uh, through his magazines in his front, entered his body, didn't exit, but he's in, he's in a world of hurt. He's in danger of drowning. It's middle of the night. So I jump in, another soldier jumps in with me to get his head out of the water. The uh, other guy's a medic, and he's trying to give him an IV and this uh, putrid... Uh, Rice paddy water. My guys are behind me on the, uh, you will, uh, the near shore. The enemy's in front on the far shore. There's a big firefight going on with rounds going over my head. We gotta, we have a mission to do a, a dawn attack and a link up. Losing all the time. Eventually I put the soldiers online and we plod through the rice paddy. Of course, we have heavy firepower and we push them out. So those two examples. Uh, my point being, uh, pay attention to your training and don't dismiss it out of hand. The interaction between being a platoon leader in a relatively isolated, small base and interacting with your company command, with battalion leadership, how often did you see them and how did they influence both your day-to-day existence and your understanding of the mission in Vietnam? Oh, very good question. And I try to get that in the book. I had a very unusual experience. Uh, Almost never does a platoon operate on its own. And I expected when I got there that my company commander would be within a whisper of me. Not a whisper, then a yell. Sir, we're in a world of hurt here. What do you want me to do? Move right, move right. Well, that never happened. Uh, I saw my company commander, saw him, I think twice in my whole time under his command in combat. He was about three or four clicks away from me. The only time I saw him is uh, when uh, I reported to him to get a broader mission than my immediate mission. He was trying to talk to all of his platoon leaders at the same time, and uh, he would call us in, and by call us in, it's not like you got in the car and drove up there. You even got a helicopter and went to him. You went on patrol. 
So just patrolling up to him was uh, you know, it was another patrol. Keep your eyes open. Watch out for booby traps. And we, we lost uh, we lost two men on one of those uh, one of those two linkups with him. I very seldom saw him. Uh, the battalion command very interesting. Uh, from my experience on what to do, what not to do. First battalion commander, when I uh, arrived at the base camp, this would be a landing zone North English, the way we operated Vietnam, sort of a battalion reinforced size camp. But my battalion commander is located there. I wanted to have a one-on-one with me. Of course, you're a lieutenant, and this lieutenant colonel is very, very senior to you. But he's tried to put me at ease. But uh, at the end of our was it nighttime discussion in his uh, small office, he asked me, you have a will, which I did have a will, which, by the way, is good to have if you're going to be a soldier. <clears throat> and I had a family, too. But the question was like startling. I said, yes, sir. And the follow-on was probably what he should not have said. He said, oh, thank goodness. So many guys, so many lieutenants come here, they don't have a will. And they get killed. And then uh, I just think, you know, they're really leaving everything at risk. These were not reassuring words. Uh, I never saw him again, except after I was wounded (laughs) and only then in passing. So he disappears, though, a couple of months later. And a major, after a a pretty heavy firefight uh, at my platoon, comes in at dawn. And I don't know who he is. And he doesn't tell me who he is. Uh, his name was Riscasi. Uh, Riscasi will later be a four-star general, but he's a major uh, when he arrives, and I'm in a grumpy mood. I'm in a grumpy mood. Well, we've been fighting all night. The fighting just had. I'd, I'd lost a third of my soldiers, so I wasn't happy about that. We'd held our p- position, but you know, I'm tired. I'm beat. I'm grumpy. I've been killing during the night. That sort of doesn't get you in a upbeat mood. And the major shows up. I'm polite with him. But as he's leaving and he's checking everything out, he doesn't say much, but he gives me some instructions. And I realize he's the battalion commander. Well, usually battalion commanders are lieutenant colonel. Uh, he, he's on a promotion list, it turns out. And, and sometime later, he pins on his, uh, his oak leaf as a lieutenant colonel. But uh, the difference was night and day. But to answer your question, you see how seldom I'm actually seeing him. S3 was a voice on the radio. For all intents and purposes, my company commander is a voice on the radio. Uh, so what I discovered, and could happen to anybody, but I do think was unusual, I'm on my own. And you're making uh, decisions daily. I can't overstate that, daily. And we get right down to it many times a day that have implications of life or death, right or wrong, morality or immorality. The little things and the big things. Little things. Squatters, I want all the soldiers brush their teeth every morning. Brush their teeth. We can do it. The big things. All right, here's the way we're going to attack. I want first squad to lay down a base of fire. Second squad, I'll be moving with you. We're going to come around the left flank. So you're you're making the decisions. And I think it's a good thing for any leader. This includes NCOs. NCOs, by the way, are very good at this, very natural at this. When in charge, take charge. Just try to make sure you get it right. If you don't get it right, you're not going to get everything right. Try to get it right the next time. Don't repeat your mistakes. You're living on a very small base. The other officers are three to four kilometers away. Their voices on the radio. How did you deal with the potential sense of isolation or loneliness? First of all, you keep focused on the job. 
busyness uh, sort of uh, gets you away from distractions and woe is me. Uh, second thing, don't try to be uh, in intimate with your subordinates. Don't let them know your fears. Don't let them know your concerns. Thirdly, listen to them. Talk to them. Talk to them, but in a way in which they get to talk to you. That is to say, don't be aloof. Uh, don't be cold. Uh, let them know that you have an interest uh, in them. Uh, and don't be superficial about it. Uh, you'll find that uh, at platoon level, you're going to be dealing with uh, people uh, who are just beyond boyhood. Uh, I actually had, uh, and this was against the rules, I don't know what happened. I had, a, a, I believe it was two 17-year-olds in my platoon, uh, a bunch of 18-year-olds, and then the average age was probably 19. I would think, and that would count me in the uh, platoon sergeant. Platoon sergeant was the old man. Uh, you know, <laughs> I remember being as a company commander when I was 25. Uh, I realized they were referring me as the old man. I thought, well, <laughs> I have arrived. But to get back to your question, uh, you you've got to know your soldiers. You've got to know who you can rely on. You have to know their strengths and weaknesses. But you also have to realize they're human beings. And you also have to realize they're very young human beings. My observation is most soldiers want to please the leader. They want to be seen as a good soldier. And they know the way to do that is for them to do their duty. What they don't want, they don't want to know your problems, uh, your hang-ups. I don't even think they want to know, geez, I got a headache tonight. I feel like hell. They don't want to hear that. The best uh, story I can tell about this if you'll stick with me on this one, came from the author who wrote uh, The Forgotten War, Fehrenbach. Fehrenbach wrote a wonderful book on the Korean War. And when I was a battalion commander, I invited him to my battalion to talk to the officers. Uh, after he had spoken about the Korean War, one of the uh, officers in the battalion said, Mr. Fehrenbach, if you had to do it all over again, what would you do differently? He was a forward observer in this war. So I wondered how he would answer the question. Here's how he answered it. He says, first of all, I would have been a lot kinder with them, with my soldiers. I said, well, that's interesting. Probably a good point. And then he said, in complete contradiction to the first statement, but I also would have been a lot harder. Uh, now, I'm going to come back to that because I, through my experience in the Army, and especially in combat, I know exactly what he's talking about. And the third one was... Uh, but Fehrenbach said it. The third thing he said, and I swear his eyes glistened when he said this, I would have shown them a bit more how much I love them. So what was he talking about? Kinder. Treat them as human beings. They're not automatons. They're not uh, expendables that you use to get the job done. Harder. It would have been harder on them. Make them do what they have to do to keep them alive keep the mission uh, accomplishable. Make them dig that foxhole deep. Make them set their fields of fire. Make sure their weapons are clean. Stay on them. Make sure they stay healthy. And then the third one, think of how much your soldiers depend on you for everything. Your life is in their hands. When you're in combat, what you do, what you decide, 
how you order them to move, their life is in your hands. You have to show them that you realize that their lives are precious to you. That doesn't mean you get mawkish about it, but you have to get that message across. So Fehrenbach had a lot of wisdom in what he said. In Platoon Leader, you tell a story involving a suspected Viet Cong family and the the local Vietnamese security forces, in effect, committing human rights violations against them. We've seen in Ukraine, we've seen in our wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, that civilians are part of the battlefield, that warfare is not sterile. What prior to that influenced the decisions you made that day? And what coming out of that did you go forward with? Well, I'll go back to uh, sort of the uh, impact of family on your values. I was fortunate I came from uh, two parents that uh, loved me and wanted to raise me right. So it's a great beginning. West Point was a tremendous reinforcement. Uh, It's in the cadet prayer, a harder right over the easier wrong. And there's no question uh, that often doing the right thing is harder uh, at the uh, instant it occurs or the opportunity occurs than than doing the wrong thing. There was no question in my mind that uh, when the national police that had arrived under orders into my location, that they were the authorities in this uh, matter, but I didn't expect them to become almost immediately the brutes that they were. On the surface, they looked like anybody else. And this is was probably in their SOP, standard argument procedure. When they come in, I've got uh, a mother with uh, two small children, and I believe it was uh, three older people, as I recall. They are older to the point that they're bent and stooped and and all of this. They should not have been subjected to anything physically difficult. And so at first, the police were questioning the Vietnamese. I don't know what they're saying. They put the mother inside of the push-up position, and she's got to get a foot up on a rock, and they start whacking her on the sole of her foot with uh, a bamboo cane. And that hurts. Very, very painful. And I'm aghast. I, I want it to stop. So I press that to the national police. Uh, they're incensed that I would stop them. This is their domain, they believe, and they've been sent here to find out about this family. What? I don't know. Not the only suspected Viet Cong family you've picked up. But in my eyes, it's it's a mother with children and a bunch of old people, and they're roughing them up. So I call higher headquarters, uh, trying to get a clearance. And uh, higher headquarters, after, I guess there's some exchange, because I don't get an immediate answer, but uh, uh, it eventually comes back, hey, you're not in charge. This is a Vietnamese thing. Stand aside. He's, I, that's not the word used, but that was the meaning. Meantime, the national police are realizing I'm asking for something, and they're getting miffed. They're not waiting. They get back to it, and they're whacking it. And I get off the radio. I now have a direct order to stand aside. It's passed me by my company co- commander. He probably got it from somebody else, but I don't know that. And uh, that cane comes up again, and I tell the national police to stop. And this time I mean it. Uh, there's blood in my eye. I'm sure they, they saw it. They whacked that woman again. There's going to be more than blood in my eye. And they stop. 
So I've risked a number of things with that. Disobedience uh, of an order uh, is a court-martial offense. So I guess my defense would be it was an illegal order. How do I know it's an illegal order? I'm a lieutenant in the Bush, and uh, this has gone through some change. Probably a lawyer somewhere ruled on this at some point, maybe not in the battalion. But it was wrong to do it. So the devil do his worst. Uh, I stopped it. End of story. Jim, I want to thank you for being on this beer today. Uh, it's not every episode that we get to have an author of your caliber, of uh, a leader of your caliber who has come in and has continued to influence the army and, and junior leaders in the way that you have. So thank you for your time and thank you for your, your willingness to reflect with us. You're welcome. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Spear. The Spear is produced by the Modern War Institute at West Point. What you hear in each episode are the views of the participants and don't represent the position of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. Be sure you're subscribed to The Spear on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app, where you can also give the podcast a rating or leave a review, which helps us reach new listeners. And if you aren't yet following MWI on social media, please find us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Thanks again for listening.